Hi, you're listening to Living Life on Purpose, and I'm your host, Matt Wilson. The goal of this show is for us to sit down with successful people who also live a life of purpose. We want you to hear their stories, understand that they've had to overcome adversity, how their faith has played a role, and ultimately we want you to be encouraged by the things that you hear so that you can walk through similar situations. We hope you enjoy. Today on the show, we have Jim the Rookie Morris. Jim is a motivational speaker, author, and real-life rookie. Jim, it's an honor to have you here today. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be with you. So when we first started talking about having you on the show, uh, I'll admit I had never seen the movie The Rookie. So I said, I've got to watch this movie. So I watched the movie with my family, absolutely loved it. And you know, I just want to encourage anybody that's out there that has not seen it, a great story. Jim is the reason that they made the movie because his story is so compelling. And they, um, I think they did a great job of, of just encapsulating some of the things that you walk through. But as I was doing research on that, I found out that, that your, your real story began after that movie was over. It seems like the, as we were just talking about a couple minutes ago, the story of perseverance just continues to keep going. So uh, share with us a little bit about how that movie came about and then, you know, Tell us what's happened since that movie came out. I bet came about with a group of high school kids who, when I challenged them, they challenged me back. They lived up to their end of the bargain, so I had to own up to mine. I went to a tryout. And this is looking back. I'm 35. At 28, I had a surgery in which the doctor said, you'll never, ever pitch again physically incapable. 85% of the muscle out of your arm can't be done. I'm like, I don't care. And so I started teaching and coaching. The kids challenged me. They win. I had to go try out. And that's when I come and find out that I'm not throwing 88 anymore. When I was young and talented, I'm throwing 98. And I was stunned because those kids were hitting me all over the park. The kids who couldn't hit me to begin with, I now could not get out. And I go to the tryout and he tells me I'm throwing 98. And I'm just like, you know, as a man, you're like, there is a happy dance going on in your head. But as an educator, I was going, oh, you've been throwing 98 at high school kids. Man, you're getting sued is what you're getting. And um, it didn't come. The kids went to my second tryout and rained so bad they had to have me a new uh, baseball every single pitch, 98 again. Three months after the bet, I try out. Three months after the tryout, I'm in the big leagues. And in that interim, I'm working my way up through double A AA and triple A. One of my old roommates called from, okay, this is how old I am, 1983 in minor league ball. And um. He goes, I work with Michael Eisner, who was then the president of Disney. He goes, we work out every day. We saw this show on, and it's all about you making a comeback at 35. And I'm like, cool. He goes, we want to make a movie about you. And I said, yeah. And I hung up. <laughs> and um, he kept calling back. And I said, Mark, this is, I'm just getting a second chance to be a kid again. And, you know, as soon as the season's over, I'm going to go home and coach football and right back into baseball. And He kept calling. I finally made my agent call him. I said, look, I can't handle these calls anymore. He told me he wants to make a movie. And Steve goes, who would you want to play you? And I'm like, not you too, dude. And um, I finally get called up to the big leagues. And the next day we're in L.A. uh, playing the Angels. And Bill Plaschke, a writer for the L.A. Times, writes this huge article about me in the front cover of the sports page on a Sunday edition. I walk downstairs to have breakfast. I pull out the sports page. I'm all over the whole cover, man. The kids that I coached, they're interviewed. My family's interviewed. I'm interviewed. And there it is. And from that point on, I went room service. I shoved my paper back inside and I went upstairs to order room service. That night in the hotel, they had to change my room number because we're getting calls from authors and 
magazine people and documentary people and movie people going, we want to make a movie about this. And in my mind, I'm still a 35-year-old fat guy just living a kid's dream again. And over the course of the next four days, during that four-day stand with the Angels, we went to, I think, every movie studio or somewhere thereabouts and had dinner or lunch or breakfast with different people. And they did not have what I wanted. And they kept going, we can throw this in and we can throw that in. And this would make a great sub story. And I'm like, none of that happened. Why? And finally, as we're walking across the down the grounds at Disney, uh, Steve, my agent, looks at me and goes, well, what, what, what would you want? How would you want this to play out? And I said, I want a movie about kids who've been counted out from the beginning. And I said, the second part of it, I want people my age to realize you get a second chance. Are you willing to take it? What are you willing to put into it? How much are you willing to sweat? And we go upstairs, Michael Eisner and Mark are there and they go, this is what we have in mind. And he repeated everything I had said from the car across the grounds of Disney. I'm like, Disney has ears everywhere. And I was sold before I walked out of the office. I mean, they just, all these people want to play you and I'm just, I'm flattered. But, and then he gets down to Dennis and he goes, Dennis Quaid. And Dennis is from Texas. He's left-handed. He's an athlete and he'll make me look pretty for the, my grandkids. And he signed on to do the movie. I went over to his house in Brentwood and played catch with Dennis Quaid in his front yard, who at that time had made 53 movies. And I'm like, I'm playing catch with Dennis Quaid in his front yard. And after we get done, I, I go back to my Jeep and I call my mom. I said, Mom, guess where I am? And I told her where I was. She goes, you suck. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, <laughs> points with mom. And But from the time he signed on, he said, anything, anything you see being filmed that you don't like, you tell me it's out. True to his word. Um, I watched the movie with Shauna before it came out and they pulled us in to Burbank and they're like, watch this three hour movie, no sound, no music, I mean. And then there were like sound gaps and it was black and white and they get done. And they're like, what do you think? And I'm like, okay. And two weeks later at National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville, I had to sit through the movie, the finished version, and then get up and talk after it. And before I could get up and talk, I had to quit crying. I was there for almost the whole filming and I, I still, I was stunned. And the product they put out was as advertised. It was extremely powerful. And, you know, to me, it is great. You know, what you did for those kids, believing in them when nobody else believed in them, they'd won one game and you challenged them. Hey, if you guys can do this, then I will do that. And, you know, from that standpoint, them calling you out, you know, it, it, it forced you to up your game, but you know, you saw something and in, in spoke life into them that nobody else had done before. And so they rose to the occasion and, and then you rose to the occasion. And so exactly. that was, um, that was awesome how all of that came about. But, but from there, so you, you go, you, you have all these things take place. You have this movie come out and then you still had challenges after that. At what point after? you know, all of this stuff took place. I, I know there was uh, some serious struggles and, and issues that you had to deal with. Tell us a little bit about that. In 01, right before the movie came out, I signed on with the Dodgers. Dr. Job was the guy who did the original Tommy John on me. And he, I went back to him for the second one. I get in shape for a year. He goes, hey, the Dodgers need a lefty reliever. And they're looking for a closer. He gets me a contract. It's the first time I've ever had a doctor get me a baseball contract, but you know, whatever works. And I go to Chavez Ravine and I'm either at Dr. Job's office uh, working at their state-of-the-art facility or I'm out at Dodger Stadium practicing and perfect, you know, leg press and over a thousand pounds, 
arm speed 98 to 102. Control is exactly where I want it. My breaking ball is awesome. In five days going from LA to Florida where they were still in spring training, something happened to me in five days that I can't explain. I All of a sudden, I couldn't judge a ball being thrown back at me or hit back at me. Um, the guy who taught hitting and bunting lessons and could no longer hit or bunt. And I, I just, my balance was off. And I thought, if I throw the ball up there 100 and they hit it back at the at me 110, what am I going to do? And basically it came down to, hey, you know what? My arm hurts and I, I'm going to retire and I'm going to go to the movie set now. And I never told anybody what was going on. I go home, other bizarre things start happening. Um, through the next 15 years, I have 70 surgeries and I'm either on pain pills before, during, or after to get well and never mistaking them, but that didn't help. And we still couldn't find out what was going on. What it came down to was your dopamine levels are way off on the right side of your brain, which is the left hand tremor you have right now. And um, you have Parkinson's. So they send me the top guy in the world. And I go to Houston. I see him. Worst bedside manner on the planet. So after he talked to me, I fired him. But he said, you have CTE-induced Parkinson's and too many concussions. High school, college football. And then whatever else you did just being a boy and getting in car wrecks and everything else. All right, you're going to get sicker. This medicine will help you. So he gives me carbidopa. It's a combination Parkinson's drug that helps. And immediately my symptoms were better, but I was not hungry. And then my stomach stops working and it's all because of the medicine. And I have gastric bypass, not because I'm this huge fat guy, but because your stomach doesn't work at all. Food just lays there. <laughs> Like, wow, I had to eat a green egg and sit in the hospital for two days. And every time they would take me back to the MRI thing, they were like, the food's not moving at all. And so you have Parkinson's. Since the medicine hurt the stomach, I had deep brain stimulator put in, two electrodes on each side of my brain, battery pack across my chest, which TSA loves that. And you're going to get sicker. That's all there is to it. You're just going to get sicker. My wife had to start traveling with me. I am so happy our youngest daughter was our most grown-up daughter because her senior year, she she owned our house, and we'd be on the road, and she was there. I never missed speeches from it or anything else, but I would sleep before, during, and after. And one of the, my deals with Parkinson's was a pain syndrome that goes along with that, and I would get a headache on January 1st, and everybody's like, oh, we'll take two Tylenol. Yeah, and on June 1st, it might go away. And then for three days... You're cool, and then you get a sinus infection, your neck locks up, and oh, here's another headache for six months. And so the pain pills and the surgeries, surgeries were adding up to pain pills. I was not mistaking them, but they weren't working, and I was still in pain, and I started drinking. And I thought, well, maybe I can kill some of the pain. And don't be your own doctor. It doesn't work too well, unless you are a doctor, and that probably won't work too well either. Find myself in rehab. Don't even remember the week of Christmas in 2016 when all the kids came in. Because every time I go back to the doctor, they turn up my deep brain stimulator and they go, it's just going to get worse. It's just going to get worse. Then my daughters pull me aside and they had watched a video of a speech I'd done recently. And they're like, dad, you don't make any facial gestures anymore. And your eyes don't blink. What is wrong with you? Well, now you got to talk to the whole family. And so that adds on top of it. And then the shame builds up and you're like, I don't know why this is going wrong, but it is. And I'll just drink more and end up in rehab. <laughs> my Christmas present in 2016. And um, my counselor was a pastor and he, he pulled me in, loves baseball, been to every major league baseball stadium, has mementos from all of them in his office. And he pulls me in, he goes, 
love the movie, love the story. Dennis was awesome. Why are you here? And I said, I wasn't trying to kill myself, but I wasn't trying to live either. I just believed everything the world was telling me. You're just going to get sicker. It's just going to get worse. That's just how it is. And to the point where my mom bought me a cane to walk around the block and drag my leg. And he goes, okay, no excuses. He goes, what happened? And I said, well, I said, I know Jesus is with me every step of the way. He goes, so Jesus is your co-pilot in a matter of speaking. I said, yes, sir. He goes, if Jesus is in a vehicle with you, why is he not driving? <laughs> and I have no idea why that hit me as hard as it did, but it was like a light switch. I was like, huh, okay. I never had any withdrawal. I never got sick. Everybody else was so sick they couldn't even stand up. I was fine. I go through three weeks of that, and they tried to send me home a week and a half early because <laughs> they're just like, you're more well than the psychiatrist we're having you see right now. <laughs> and started walking again while I was there. It was a <laughs> eighth of a mile track. And so you had to do like 70 laps around this thing to get like four miles. <laughs> so you're just walking and walking and walking. But I had to get up because when you're in a center like that, most people smoke. When they can't have one thing, they smoke. And to avoid the cigarette smoke, I would get up and walk at four o'clock every morning before anybody got up to smoke. And by the time I came home, I had Parkinson's, but I didn't care. And the surgeries I had after that, I just took him in stride. It's been four and a half years, over four and a half years. No, no drinking. Don't care about it. Don't care about pain pills. Don't care about any of it. And I've got a lot to live for. And we all do. And I think we lose sight of that sometimes. And we're like, I feel invisible. If I just help myself become a little more invisible, isn't that better? And that's not what God wants for us. And I think that I bought into what everybody in this world was telling me. The doctors put me in this little box, and we're not going to think out of that box, and this is just the way it is. You're going to get more ill and more ill and more ill, and then you're going to get something. You, you won't die of Parkinson's, but you're going to get something that's going to kill you because you had Parkinson's. I'm like, well, how is that any different? And so I would go into the doctor's offices, and I would see Parkinson's people, young, old, staring at the wall, staring a hole through the wall. Their eyes don't blink. They don't move. They're just static. And in the meantime, I am sleeping before I go on the road. I'm sleeping on the plane. I get to the hotel where I'm speaking or whatever city I'm in. And I sleep until I go. And then I go talk. I do perfect. And then I come back and I go back to bed until my plane leaves. And then I get back on the plane. And I go home and sleep. And that was my cycle for like 17 years. I could not get away from the pain. And, you know, God is good. And it doesn't have, matter how many times I think I've let him down. That's just that little voice that's going, oh, it's just going to get worse. It's just going to get worse. And that's not always true. Why not do your best and then find out where the chips lay after that? And so, you know, I think during the pandemic and now social division and let's everybody be offended by everything, we argue about things that don't really mean anything a lot of the time. And when we should be drawn to each other and helping each other, everybody's telling us to be scared of each other. And I think that is not what Jesus or God had in mind for, for anyone. I agree 100%. And I, I love everything that you just said. And you've got one life to live. I've got one life to live, at least here on this earth. Now, one day we'll go to eternity and, and for us, it's heaven. But from that standpoint, 
you know, every single person that is here on this planet is here for a purpose. And whether we've got good circumstances or bad, we've still got to continue to move forward in that purpose in order to find fulfillment without Jesus, without relationship with him, there is no true fulfillment. But with him, even in the midst of trials and tribulations, which were considered, you know, supposed to consider pure joy, you know, we're able to still find a peace that surpasses all understanding. And this past year and a half, you know, this whole season of fear, control, manipulation, division, it, it has been about splitting people up. It has been about uh, just constantly stirring up anger and strife. And, you know, I just I have conversations with people daily about how I'm just going to continue to live the way that I'm supposed to live. I can't do anything about anybody else, but I will continue to be the person God's called me to be no matter what, because I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I know that I know where I'm going, but and when that day comes, I'm ready. But but until then, I've got something that I've got to fulfill or he wouldn't have me here. So I cannot accelerate that time frame as to when I'm supposed to be with him. I cannot slow it down. I've just got to live each day and and not know when the end's going to be. But, you know, it's just, it's crazy to me to see how many people have just stopped living for a year and a half. And, and some of them haven't done a single thing. I've been on 16 flights. I've been to multiple conferences. I go to church every week. You know, I go to the gym every day. I just, I, I continue to live. And what I've told my family over and over is we are not going to change who God's called us to be because there is a pandemic that's going on. There's no asterisks when we get to heaven. Either we did what we were supposed to do or we didn't, period. Stay tuned. We'll have more Living Life on Purpose after we hear from one of our sponsors. Are you a business person that's hungry for more of the Holy Spirit at work? Partnering with God is what you were designed for. Experiencing God at work and being a blessing to the city that you live in is accessible to every believer. Hearing from God for your business and city shouldn't feel mysterious or inaccessible. Heaven and Business exists to give you access to the tools and training you need to equip you to grow with God in business and influence. Begin with our free trial and an online membership, then explore the events, community, and other resources. Check out heavenandbusiness.com today if this is what you're looking for, and I promise you won't be disappointed. And now, back to Living Life on Purpose with your host, Matt Wilson. Everything that you've experienced in life, like to be able to say God is good in the midst of you know all of the things that you've been through is a testament to the relationship that you have with him, you know, it's not good or bad based on, you know, my situation. He's good, period. But I do think that, that there are so many people that are walking around and they're, they're letting their circumstances define them. They're constantly being manipulated by either the news or social media as to how they're supposed to live or who's against them or who's for them, this, that, and the other. So I do think that that's, that's why it's been so challenging for so many people. If if you don't have him, it's a pretty hopeless world. Yeah, and there's a lot of noise out there. I guess I'll finish the answer because I kind of cut it off. Okay, the only surgery that I had in 2020, which, by the way, since 2001, it's the only year I've only had one surgery, and I had my DBS taken out. I don't know how much you know, but I had a brain scan done again. Your dopamine levels are fine. You do not have Parkinson's. Let's pull out the first set and compare. And then they pull it out and that said normal too. 
the reason we went to Houston to see this guy and the reason he diagnosed me because of, because of that. So if God can change that, cannot God change anything? I don't have Parkinson's anymore. And, you know, I've had people get mad at me and go, how could you tell people you had it? I, my loved one died. I get that. Well, do you think you deserved it more than anybody else? No. I said, but I can't change what happened. I went from walking with a cane around a block to running five miles. I've put in a lot of time. Parkinson's suck. Yeah, I couldn't even button my own buttons. Everything I ate made me sick. Headaches for seven or eight months. 70 surgeries, mostly nerve-related. And they're like, why do your nerves keep messing up? Then they would go in and they would go, oh, you have like extra branches of nerves everywhere. I'm like, oh, great. Does that make Parkinson's even worse? Or is that because Parkinson's or what? Nobody had any answers. And so everybody put me in this little box and said, you're not going to get well. And I think when, when the world puts us in a box, I think that's when God has the brightest light to shine because he goes, you're not limited. Let's go. And then you go, hey, you're right. Which is kind of cool if you can look at God and go, hey, you were right. <laughs> all right. You know, I, I, I do. First of all, I want to just validate what you're saying as far as, you know, being healed from Parkinson's because the church that I go to, there have been people that they have prayed for that have been healed of Parkinson's. I was at a conference one time and uh, it was called the There Is More Conference. It was in Birmingham. And, you know, there was a guy that walked by and he was pushing his wheelchair and a guy came up to me. He said, you see that guy who's pushing his wheelchair? I said, yeah. He said he came in in that wheelchair. We prayed for him. Things started to pop in his body. He's pushing his own wheelchair because he doesn't need it. He had Parkinson's. He got healed. So I've heard of multiple people being healed from Parkinson's. And people need to know that the diagnosis of man is not necessarily the final word of God. Exactly. And at the end of the day, doctors are, are great. They're wonderful, but they are practicing physicians. They are working on the natural knowledge that they have. God is not a natural God. He is a supernatural God. He is capable of doing whatever he wants, however he wants to do it. And he still heals today. He never got out of the healing business. Jesus died on the cross for our healing, for sickness, for disease. And I believe that that never stopped. And, and I continue to see those things on a regular basis of people getting healed of, of all kinds of stuff. It doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. Parkinson's is an uncurable disease according to man, but according yeah. to God, he created you and he can do whatever he wants. So I think it's powerful testimony. And there are other testimonies. You know, I, I just know the more we pray for healing, the more we believe for healing, the more we see people get healed. And that is an amazing thing because God doesn't want to be put in a box either. And the more we no. try to put him in a box and say, well, he doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. I believe that, you know, this stopped then and that happened. No, like just read his word and then see what he did then. He's the same God. So that's exciting. Yeah. I'm going to tell you real quick. I know. Our time's coming up, but how many times as people do we face someone else setting their limitations on us and going, you, that's impossible. You can't do that. It won't happen. It can't be done. There's not enough time. There's not enough people. It's no. I was born with asthma. Within 24 hours, I had pneumonia. I was never supposed to get out of the hospital. And then my earthly father, who's supposed to be the one who brings you up, is the one putting all these limitations on me physically, verbally any way he can to the point where he's holding my little brother and he looks down at me. I think I was seven. And he goes, this is the one we wanted. We never wanted you. Mm. And 
So limitation, limitation, you will never, because of your asthma, play outside. You'll never play a sport. You'll never play on grass. Did it. High school guidance counselor, you will never make it in college. You're too stupid. Straight A's in college. Football coach, you'll never make it in baseball. Give it up. You're done. No. Hey, you're sick. You have Parkinson's. You're going to get sicker and die. That's just how it is. Oh, let's look at the first one. And I threw 88 when I was young and talented. And at 35, after a doctor said, you can't pitch anymore because of all the muscle out of your arm, God went, you want to bet? 98 to 102. And I actually knew it was going most of the time, which is a big difference. So it was limitations, either self-imposed or imposed by others. We put ourselves underneath those all the time and we're afraid to break out and go, nobody's limiting me. I want to see how far I can go. I can't be the best Matt, but I can be the best Jimmy I can possibly be. Let's go get it done. Well, I definitely think that, you know, first of all, the, the word says that the, the tongue there's, there's power to speak life and death. And so the things that we speak, it, it is extremely powerful. So we're either building people up or we're tearing people down, but there's also power in belief. So when somebody speaks something over us, we either have the ability to receive that or say, no, that's not me. And I, I do think that, that there are so many people that are having things spoken over them that don't have the same perseverance that it's in there, but they don't realize that they've got that same perseverance. So you know, I just want to honor you for having the ability and the willingness to continue to persevere time after time after time. When people were constantly telling you, you can't, you said, that's not who I am. I can. I'm going to continue to move forward. And then God using that to show those people wrong over and over and over just to prove to them, hey, you don't define who Jim Morris is. And so I just I think it's awesome. It's an incredibly powerful and empowering story that you have. And to anybody else that's out there listening, you can do the same thing too. I can't tell you how many times I've had things spoken over me that were not true and I didn't come into agreement with. I may have come into agreement for a brief period of time, but I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to let that define me. I'm going to continue to move forward. And you know, I failed speech class in college. I speak in front of large groups over and over and over. The professor didn't like the topics that I chose. It wasn't that I was a bad speaker. We had different political views and my speeches were political. You know, so I, it was cancel culture before cancel culture was cool. But, you know, I just I think that it is so important that people recognize the things that they're consuming, that the people they're allowing to speak into their life. If you got people that are building you up, you're going to go far. You got people that are tearing you down. You are going to limit yourself in that regard. So I really appreciate you and your message. And uh, I know that this has inspired me. And so just please continue to share this good news with others as I know that you're doing. Yes, sir. Absolutely. So how can people find out more about you? Ah, JimTheRookieMorris.com. That's our website. It'll get you there. It'll take you around. We've actually had it redone by someone who's not 57 years old. And they did a great job and made it appealing. And, you know, we've also got a book out, Dream Makers, and it talks about the whole journey from baseball all the way through the movie and through the Parkinson's and all the people who told me it couldn't be done. And here I am on the other side of it. And I don't have to say, I told you, all I got to do is live. I've got something back I thought was gone for a while because I bought into it. And that's not the life that God had planned. And so take life how it's thrown at us and we make the best out of it that we possibly can. My grandfather had this saying, 
treat everybody else like you would want your grandmother treated. And when I think of that and I look at the world today, I go, man, we've got a lot of work to do. We do. And uh, and I appreciate the, the light shining in the darkness that, that you have because you are willing to speak the truth in the midst of a lot of people just saying, hey, you got to believe all those lies. So thank you. I've really enjoyed having you here today. If you all have enjoyed this message, please share it with your friends because if it helps you, it can help somebody else. And you can follow us on Facebook, Living Life on Purpose, and then also on Instagram, Living Life on Purpose Always. We hope that you've enjoyed it and we'll catch you again in two weeks.